No reductionism there. (laughs) (laughs) Especially not weight reductionism. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy here in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're asking senior members and junior members to continue their conversations outside the classroom. Often, this looks like staying after class to hash out a final question, having conversations all the way down our very long hallway, or meeting for coffee to workshop an idea that was born from class discussions. It's encounters like this, big and small, that make up the spirit of an ICS education. My name is Mark Standish, and I'm an ICS junior member. Today we're back again with Bob Sweetman and Gideon Strauss for part four of our introductory series on reformational philosophy. If you have no idea what reformational philosophy is, or if you're intrigued to hear Gideon and Bob's take on the tradition, stick with us for the next couple weeks to see what happens. If you're just joining us, you should start from the beginning of our series to catch up with the conversation so far. Now, on with the show. Inspiration can strike at unexpected moments. And for a student, there's nothing quite like the feeling of something clicking, of an idea long percolating at the back of your mind, finally rushing to the fore, of connections being forged. So for our first segment, we're asking our new junior members to share some enlivening, entertaining, and challenging moments when they've experienced just such sparks of inspiration. Today's question, what's a favorite quote of yours and why? I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Um, Yeah, and that quote is interesting because I just, I don't know, if I feel like it speaks I guess maybe people think it speaks to every time. <laughs> um, and it's just kind of a recurrent thing that people feel. But like, especially when it comes to uh, things that we are experiencing in the world today, um, like the climate crisis or the recent coronavirus outbreak, um, people, uh, yeah, it just it, it speaks to something like, for me, it's a really helpful, positive uh, outlook to have. Um, to to accept things as they are, but then to to act in it as well, and not just sort of let those things pass you by. 
I picked on this particular uh, afternoon uh, a more famous quote from uh, Emmanuel Levinas uh, from Totality Infinity. It's probably the most famous. Um, but here it is. To approach the other in conversation is to welcome his expression in which at each instant he overflows the idea a thought would carry away from it. It is therefore to receive from the other beyond the capacity of, of the eye, which means exactly to have the idea of infinity. But this also means to be taught. The relation with the other or conversation is a non-allergic relation, an ethical relation. But in as much as it is welcomed, this conversation is a teaching. Teaching is not reducible to myutics. It comes from the exterior and brings me more than I contain. It is non-violent transitivity. The very epiphany of the face is produced. Well, it's, it, it basically sum, sums up a good um, portion of his, his ideas. But I, I like the idea of um, conversation and the exteriority of the conversation and especially um, in seeing someone else's face in a conversation um, I find especially the vulnerability in, in someone else's um, face and presenting your own um, face and your own being in front of another person um, creates I think that's that's where where justice justice comes in, and I think uh, last semester I really struggled um, um, having back the kind of dancer's muscle to speak like figuratively um, in order for me to dance uh, more intuitively. I need have I need to have these muscles uh, that kind of just remember choreography. Um, without having consciously think about them, uh, the, the movements, right? Um, so my goal this semester and then for the upcoming academic year is to really um, make my own, the material that I absorb uh, through my classes and then through my readings into mine my muscle, my thing, so that whatever research uh, that I do here and then whatever new ideas that I'm forming will be both natural to myself, um, to my muscles <laughs> that are hopefully by that time built in with me, uh, built in me. And also I will want to dance this choreography in the most gracious and sort of authentic way. So uh, with that said, my quote is, <laughs> you know how Merleau-Ponty has this uh, notion of dance as a way of living the life? Um, yeah, so I like that. I like um, how he sees our body as a space where meaning can be made in our interaction with the world. So this quote uh, is from The Primacy of Perception. Mm. I will never know how you see red, and you will never know how I see it. But this separation of consciousness 
is recognized only after a failure of communication. And our first movement is to believe in an undivided being between us. For me, just recognizing that each of us is doing our own dance in the world and then we are connected by the space between us, by the movements that we're making in the space with our dances, um, just opens up another space for a genuine communication, nonverbal, but just the kind of respect that opens up space for recognizing each other uh, in the loving and caring way that we all of us all of us deserve. The staple of everyday life here at ICS is the rhythm of classes. Every week, senior and junior members gather to discuss shared texts and explore various philosophical, theological, and historical themes together. Classroom is where studying at ICS most obviously becomes a communal project. For this segment, we're attempting to bridge the divide between the classroom and life. So we're inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses. I'm Gideon Strauss. Academic Dean and Professor of Worldview Studies at ICS, and today I'm back here with our Professor of the History of Philosophy, Bob Sweetman, for part four of our crash course in Reformational Philosophy. This is one of the introductory courses every student takes at ICS. Last time, we talked about Hermann Dweviert and Dirk Wallenhoven's analyses of various tensions at play in society and the directions in which those tensions move us. Today, we're going to focus in on reformational ontology, more on that in a minute, and some of the alternatives it proposes. Welcome back, Bob. Yeah, fun. So one of the things that I love about Hermann Duerweert is captured in something that he writes in his new critique of theoretical thought. He writes, our philosophy cannot neglect the things of everyday experience. So our philosophy cannot neglect the things of everyday experience. Uh, Dweviert makes this offhand uh, mention of a dialogue between the older philosopher Parmenides and the younger Socrates. So basically what happens is Parmenides and Socrates are in conversation and Socrates is saying about how much he enjoys thinking about the good and the just and the beautiful and Parmenides responds, you know, that's awesome, but what about hair and mud and dirt and, you know, the stuff of everyday life? And then Parmenides uh, comments uh, uh, that uh, to Socrates, when you're older, philosophy will have a firmer grasp of you, and then you will not despise even the most everyday things. So Dweviert disapproves of philosophy that considers the things of everyday life to be too trivial for philosophical attention. And so in today's episode, we're going to take a look at what Dweviert does philosophically with regard to the things of everyday experience. Or in other words, we're going to talk about Hermann Dweviert's ontology. Before we do that, we need to talk a little bit, Bob, about the word ontology. It's a, it's a fraught word in the history of philosophy. So, I mean, uh, in terms of uh, etymologically, it's associated with the word for being. 
so ontos and then logos, so speaking about being. Um, but it, it uh, really emerges in the 18th century as a way of dealing with first philosophy, that is to say um, an examination of the philosopher's examination of what falls first in the human mind. Uh, and it replaced as a word for this uh, an older word, metaphysics, which is um, the conditions for our physical universe. So if what we are made to know, and this was, of course, an assumption of philosophy from uh, the time of Aristotle on, uh, that we're made to know a world of bodies in motion and the, the, uh, the discipline of mind um, that is appropriate to this investigation is physics, right? So what are the conditions that are possi make possible a, wor a world of bodies in motion such as we experience it and think about it theoretically? Metaphysics um, then uh, is the name for this first philosophy, this, this dealing with the meta conditions, you might say, of, of the world of bodies in motion, which is the world of our ordinary experience mm. or an Aristotelian. Um, this, is, this was the word that dominated for many, many centuries and came to be replaced in the 18th century, um, uh, most famously by uh, Christian Wolff, the intellectual grandfather of Immanuel Kant. It seems to me that one of the things that was going on is that if one looks at the um, examination of these meta-conditions uh, in Christian Wolff, one of the things that he does is he, he uh, inverts the relationship between act and potency. And this is a, a distinction that is characteristic of uh, metaphysics in an Aristotelian mode. That is to say, you have actuality, you, know, you have concrete actuality um, that manifests itself in a more or less perfect way. So it manifests its virtues, its entailments. Um, in a more or less perfect way. So potency represents, if you will, uh, the possibility that something will uh, be in a less perfect way, uh, and, but with the power to become more perfect in the course of its existence. So uh, potency was ruled to the shape of something actual and concrete, uh, and therefore was derived um, and but what you get with um, uh, Christian Wolf is a sense in which um, what isn't yet is somehow prior he made this a sort of universal uh, assumption that um, that actuality represents a kind of determination of something always already and hence prior. And so he changed the name of, uh, from potency to possibility. And so the possible be becomes the nest of the actual. And um, you might say celebrated the fact by giving the name of the science of the possible, uh, the name ontology rather than metaphysics.
So Bob, how would you summarize Gravier's ontology for the complete newcomer to his approach? Ontology begins, of course, with experience and, an, and then an examination of the structure of experience. So there's a real tie uh, in Doivier. The ontology um, you know, uh, is rooted in um, uh, human experience uh, and because that human experience uh, bears, you might say, the traces of the meaning of the things encountered in and through experience. So there's a real connection to the phenomenological tradition in that sense. Um, and so there is this connection with concrete reality, and, uh, and, and uh, that reality is examined in, you might say, uh, two possible ways. So one has to do with um, perduring structures uh, that uh, are manifest uh, within the world of concrete realities. And those uh, he calls, uh, or, or he saw as answers to the question how concrete things are. So in other words, uh, there's a kind of stable structure below concrete reality that is not uh, Quidditative. It's not. It, it's not an answer to the question what is X, Y, or Z, but rather how is X, Y, or Z. Um, and uh, th these are questions that uh, make possible um, answers to the question what is it that I am encountering uh, when I encounter X. So, uh, so those hows he called modes, aspects. Um, his brother-in-law, Dirk Fullenhoven, talked about them as the functions of creatures. And they represent, you might say, a perduring um, structural uh, feature of uh, uh, anything that is. He, he also talks about the anything that is, though, with regard to the structures of individuality. Yes, exactly. So that's the second. So then uh, once one has examined, so to speak, these, um, these invariant features of creaturely existence, then one begins to uh, look, use, use them to look at, uh, you might say, our concrete experience of creatures and uh, to um, get at um, the, you know, the, that meaning that they evidence, uh, which answers to the question, what is this? So it's, it's about what, the whatness of things yeah. rather than their, their how, you might say. So I'm going to try something out. Philosophers frequently, when they philosophize, philosophize with reference to what's at hand. So there's a long tradition of philosophers, you know, writing about about tables as they write on tables. Um, Duvivier has a few examples that that he famously used to um, talk about his ontology. And so, for example, there's the use of the cigar, you know, which happens to be at hand. So, could could you, with um, with reference to a thing that you would like to use, talk a little bit about? So what does one do with Duvivier's ontology as you try and philosophize about things? Right. Uh, well, so, okay. So uh, the example that I used in my own book in 2006, that was published in 2016, Tracing Between the Lines, was 
if you think of a hippopotamus. A zoologist is interested in um, a hippopotamus and is really interested in, you might say, that which contributes to the life of the hippopotamus um, as a living creature of a certain kind. But um, you would look at that hippopotamus quite differently if you were the director of the movie African Queen. In other words, it might be an unintentional prop for an aesthetically qualified event. So there are different different trajectories of approach, and Mm -hmm. they can be, I mean, they're both theoretical, but picking up on different hows of things. Right, yeah. And so there's this, this relatively complex ontology then of, Things and their hows, yes. or the structures of things, that's and, right. and their, their functions. Yeah. Okay. So in a previous episode, we traced connections between Abraham Kuyper's notion of sphere sovereignty and elements of Duvivier's approach. Could you perhaps, against the backdrop of what we've just said about ontology and Duvivier's ontology, talk a little bit more about that? Those connections between Kuyper and Duvivier, sphere sovereignty and a Duvivierian ontology. Right. So one of the things that uh, Doiviet was trying to do uh, with his ontology was to look at the human environment as a built and structured environment where the various units of construction have a kind of nature. That is to say, they foreground certain hows, you might say, within their meaning and uh, background others. So he has this very clear sense that if you have a, something that's concrete, it will, um, it will exist, it will have meaning that uh, refers to all the different hows that are possible mm-hmm. in the creation, but that give, you know, a given thing will foreground certain of those hows and background others. So if, if you're looking at um, a, a gallery, will foreground uh, the aesthetic how uh, and background, say, the numerical. When you're thinking of galleries, you're thinking of the paintings and sculptures and performance art and so on and so forth that one can encounter when when you enter. So my sense is that Kuiper um, comes with this kind of intuition that we we encounter these various kinds of human relationships that are different from from one another. So you know, a family is not a school, a school is not a church, a church is not a business, yeah. um, and and argues that these various kinds of human relationships derive a right to exist as as a gift from God, rather than at the courtesy of the state or merely as an agglomeration of individuals or whatever, they they have some givenness to them. Would it be would it be fair to say that Duviet inheriting that insight uh, tries to offer an argument for it? Yes, that's part of what's going on. So in other words, uh, to get at the the structural building blocks of these various components of the of the human environment. But there's another thing going on, and that is that uh, when we when we talked about Kuiper in our first two segments, one of the things that I tried to bring out is the connection between Kuiper and 19th century philosophy and its interest mm. in historical change, mm. and that these spheres were uh, viewed in the first instance as um, uh, you might say centra of historical 
energy to change. Mm -hmm. Dovid is very worried about this because it comes out of an historicistic, uh, in, in his view, an historicistic understanding of the human condition. In other words, that it's techno-formative power uh, collecting and deploying character, mm -hmm. right? Like that's, he identifies history with power, uh, technoformativity, and hence means and thinking, and so on and so forth. That this becomes the the context within which the human environment is built, and the context for its meaning. Yeah. And he's very worried about this. And so, what he wants is to transform the notion of societal spheres in ways that make them not just as it were, manifestations of our historical being, but rather manifestations of a great, you know, a, a much more complex set of uh, structural circumstances mm -hmm. of, of hows, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's uh, really why he deploys his, uh, his notion of modal aspects uh, in the way that he does in order to give uh, structural accounts of the built human environment. So, um, if I if I hear you correctly, Bob, um, Duevert is drawing on the tradition of Kaper, but as he draws on the tradition of Kaper, he's concerned about the historicism that that comes with that tradition in his own context. So we're talking late 1920s through, you know, to the 1960s, 70s, but mid, mid 20th century context, what would you say would have been the, con the contextual factors that, that he interacted with as he struggled with that historicist legacy in Kaiper? Well, I think in the first instance, you'd have to say that, you know, there are the, the three, uh, siblings of modernity from a political point of view, right? Liberalism on the one hand, um, but fascism and Marxism on the other. And um, I, I know that uh, one of Doivet's students, uh, Bernard Zylstra, who's like the, the second uh, senior member here at, at ICS, uh, always saw them as emergent from the same root, um, you know, so really siblings of a single parent, so to speak. Um, and in the case of National Socialism or fascism more broadly, um, this, he saw this in particular uh, as the fruit of historicism. So, and that it was that the ground was prepared uh, from, you know, in terms of the 19th century uh, fascination in German philosophical culture and social theoretical culture with um, uh, um, the historical process, with the appropriation of the deep past, the, out of a sense that uh, identity is a, a hidden continuity uh, and ex could be expressed as the destiny of, mm -hmm. of people and so on and so forth. And he saw all this kind of language being picked up and ma made into almost a caricature of itself in a national socialism. Uh, a, you know, a deep desire to undo uh, the, the differentiation and professionalization of human life, 
uh, its capitalization as well, um, and so on, um, and uh, reaching back to um, a kind of romantic ideal of a time where a single charismatic leader could uh, be the single agent of uh, a people's destiny and so on and so forth. And he saw uh, that the same historicism that fed into National Socialism was also present in Christian historical thought yeah. in the Netherlands. His response, it seems to me, was to pick up on um, a development within uh, the philosophical culture of his own day, which uh, is the, uh, the golden age of Neo-Kantianism. Um, so that's an elaboration of uh, Kantian thought on the other side of the absolute idealism of Hegel. So Kant had always uh, left, you might say, a marker of concrete reality uh, in the form of what he called the thing in and of itself. Now, it was something that you had to acknowledge, and once you acknowledged that, you know, you could then um, safely leave behind. Uh, but with Hegel, um, you know, there was an attempt to say, uh, well, do you really need that? Or is it really uh, as empty as you say it is? Isn't it itself uh, part of the, um, uh, the rationally available structure of things? So what happened is, is uh, in the Kantian tradition, a, re a return to Kant's stuff, uh, minus the connection to um, concrete reality, right? So a, a purer idealism. And the development of um, um, modalities, primary modalities of rationality, of rational structure um, that develop um, Kant's own uh, identification of three irreducible modes of critique. Um, you know, a critique of our scientific process uh, of um, meaning making, you might say, uh, our ethical process, right? So this is second critique, and then the critique of judgment, which deals with aesthetic phenomena and religious phenomena. So gradually you got, you know, more more of these divisions, and they're divisions of our rational consciousness. They They respond to the structure of our rationality and therefore represent our contribution to our understanding of the world, right? So we use, as it were, the intelligible content of our own minds in order to make sense of, our, of the world that we encounter. And uh, so by the time you get to Doivit's day, uh, this has become very complicated. Someone like uh, Nikolai von Hartmann, for example, um, has six irreducible layers of rational reflection on the world. And so you, there is definitely um, a family resemblance here. Um, it's a structural thing but that's focused on the rational subject in Neo-Kantianism. And what, uh, what Doivit does in, in a classically Kuyperian move, he says, well, no, uh, this shouldn't be an anthropocentric uh, set of layers, but rather a theocentric set of layers. And so it's displaced, it, it's, uh, it becomes not 
the structure of our consciousness, but rather the structure of the creator's care for the creation. So, so I'm hearing you say that there, there are these two contextual forces that we, we may want to highlight as we think about Duvivier carrying on in the tradition of Kaper as he crafts his ontology, the one being a response to the historicism of Kaper that he wants to sort of um, replace in thinking about the world, partly because of his fear that that historicism results in the kind of uh, politics that we see in national socialism. Yes, that would be my thesis. Then on the other hand, a response to the philosophical world in which he finds himself that is altogether neo-Kantian in the Dutch context in which he is doing his own scholarship and a recognition that uh, that tradition, so the neo-Kantian tradition, recognizes um, modes of human experience, but as modes of human experience rationally conceived, he wants to recognize that there, there is this diversity to the world in which we find ourselves, but that is rather than the result of our human reasoning with regard to our perception of the world. It's These are givens. These are divine givens in terms of how the world functions. Is that yes. fair? That is what I was trying to say. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so one of the things that followers of, of Duvivier um, celebrate is uh, his approach to the the complexity of the world in which we find ourselves. And I think we've heard a little bit in what you've described of his ontology of, of his a- approach to that complexity. Western philosophy throughout its history has struggled with dealing with the complexity of the world in, in particular ways. And I was wondering if we could make a little segue maybe, and this might be a Volenhovian segue, but how would you position Duvivier's approach to the complexity of the world in, in relation to these broader yeah. approaches to it in, in history? Um, yeah, that's good. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to suggest this might be helpful. I, I wouldn't say that this is a sort of sufficient concept, but uh, this might be helpful. Duvivier understands, and Vollenhoven, both understood uh, a distinction that, is, uh, that we often overlook uh, and, and that is the distinction between uh, something being ubiquitous and something being fundamental. Hmm. So, in other words, all reductionism is, uh, if in a Doivirian frame, is a mistake, a mistaking of the ubiquity of some way of being in the world for its fundament. Okay. So historicism is the mistaking of the ubiquity of uh, the historical way of of flourishing mm-hmm. in the world uh, for the fundamental foundation of all that is, yep. or yep. is meaningful, I should say. Uh, and you could do the same with, uh, you know, you could do the same with biology, certain versions of evolutionary theory, for example. Not perhaps all versions, mm-hmm. but certain versions of evolutionary theory would uh, have a have a tendency to th- that the biotic is ubiquitous is something that Doivid himself or Vollenhoven would agree to. Yes, of course, the biotic is everywhere is everywhere there. If not 
something that comes to expression subjectively. Um, it 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 it's uh, you know it can it can be present objectively. Yeah. So this is what one of the distinctions that's worked with in Doivet's ontology, but and gets at this difference. It allows you to understand the ubiquity of uh, every single primary uh, how of mm -hmm. existence um, without ascribing fundamentality to any of them. Yeah. So so this is something that I've heard many times from followers of Doivet, uh, a sort of a, an, uh, a a joyous um, celebration of Duevier's non-reductionism, yeah. anti-reductionism. And again, if I if I hear what you're saying, is that uh, Duevier would say that you know there are all the, there are all these ways in which things exist. Um, that frequently a mistake that is made by scholars is that they take one of these ways in which things exist to be the the basic way of in which all things yes, exist. Yes, because they rightly see its ubiquity. Okay. Yeah. They're not wrong about that. They're absolutely right about that. So if I if I recall the first lecture I ever heard on on Duvier's ontology, decades ago, um, uh, from a philosophy professor, the suggestion was that these modes of existence come uh, with uh, the uh, the effect of law. They come with a, a a normative impact, and all of these modes that come with this particular kind of Force, or that might have this particular kind of hold on creatures, are themselves expressions of the love of God. How do we, um, how do we make sense of, and how does Duvivier so love, law, norm? Yeah. So if you start, if we can start with Kuiper and his, you know, his understanding of spheres again, and refer back to stuff that we talked about earlier. Uh, one of the things that Kuiper was looking at was the rapid differentiation of human life, right? So the the development of autonomous institutional structures with their own ways of of uh, existing and acting, their own intentions and missions, and so on. And uh, you know, he was uh, you know he was trying to think through this and so on in a way that um, uh, did not. Uh, automatically put him at sixes and sevens with this phenomenon, but rather allowed him to think of this phenomenon as perhaps something that one could enter into faithfully. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if that's if that differentiation, right, uh, uh, is um, uh, that that complexification of society that he's responding to, um, you know, he began to think of this theologically. Uh, and of course, because theologically, theocentrically, uh, and began to understand this uh, not just as uh, at, not just as something that emerges historically, that is to say, that is the result of a certain historical pattern of change, uh, but rather as consistent with the very nature of the creation. And uh, you know, and his reading of the creation story. So he read Genesis one in in terms of the develop, you know, the separating out of things irreducible to each other, and then their proper relationship toward each other and toward the God who may who makes them. So this became an understanding of the creation itself. The creation exists to differentiate to become ever more complicated and then 
in a context where the, the creation is unified. And so both Kuiper and then Doiviert are working with that understanding of creation. So Doiviert works with it as a, a presupposition of philosophical analysis, and Kuiper works with it as, um, you might say, a theological construction. So, you know, so this is, uh, this kind of complexity is the very intention of the creator. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's not just complexity, but it's in, in integral complexity. Mm -hmm. So along with complexification, there has to be integration, or otherwise what you've just got is a bunch of fragments that don't really together very well that that integ the, the integration though so if if i hear you correctly uh Duvert would criticize efforts at making some kind of integral sense of the complexity or diversity of things by reducing them to some particular aspect yes some primordial or fundamental unity yes that's right and would instead say that that the, the integration of what is is in a sense external to what is because it's in Christ that sort of like things are held together by God. Well, yeah, although I think he thinks of uh, the creator's relationship to the creation as, um, you know, not only sovereign but intrinsic. That is to say mm -hmm. that God works from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And uh, so, well, you know, one, one can ask questions about that and so on and so forth. But I think the, the understanding is, is that uh, these divine invitations, right, mm -hmm. um, are, um, you know, work from the inside out. Now, you know, you talked about norms and stuff. So it strikes me that uh, the, the idea that at least a number of these hows, these elemental hows are are uh you might say the ground of um uh the particularly the the human built world um uh humans are responsible they're religiously responsible mm -hmm. um and he's you know Doiviet and both Doiviet and Volenhoven are are not of a mind to say that any other creature is responsible in quite the same way so they have quite a anthropocentric sense of uh the the creation mm -hmm. that may be work for the future for the reformation tradition mm -hmm. but at any rate that's that was their sense but what they were absolutely convinced of is that human beings are responsible for their responses to mm -hmm. god's invitations and therefore uh their built community or their yeah their built environment is one that represents choices made in freedom and hence the re what one responds to uh, not law as a kind of mechanical process, mm -hmm. but rather something that invites judgment, discernment, and choice. Mm -hmm. And hence there has to be a distinction, you might say, between um, the, the divine invitation and our understanding of that divine invitation, mm -hmm. that gap is the gap within which responsibility can exist. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? 
This is where we and our weekly guests get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Bob, what's your pleasure? Well, I had the pleasure on Monday of going to a uh, Bachelor of Arts in Music recital of the son of two very dear friends of Roseanne and I. Um, he uh, is a tenor. Um, he's a very flamboyant figure. But of course, he, he had to sing a variety of different styles. He's, he's going on for an MA in opera. Um, his, his métier, though, is comic song. And so um, after all this very serious stuff, um, his last number was um, Candide by Leonard Bernstein. Mm. <laughs> so one, I didn't know that Leonard Bernstein was a composer as well as, of course, that's my ignorance. But at any rate, this, the, uh, it is a very, very comic piece. And um, uh, this singer, his uh, name is David Walsh, um, just did it so, so well. And for the occasion, he had put on false fingernails that had this amazing uh, maroon um, polish. And anyway, it was hilarious and just wonderful. Well, that's great. I made a playlist earlier this week of uh, uh, various um, instances of a Bernstein song called Some Other Time, and I um, cried to my playlist. But my pleasure this week is very simple. Um, so this morning, uh, before this recording, when I arrived at my desk here at the Institute for Christian Studies, I found a banana-flavored choco pie, and that's my pleasure for the day. But apparently, Danielle, you know the origin of my banana choco pie. One of the junior members, there's a uh, class that happens in the evenings here, which you, Mark, are a part of. Mm -hmm. um, virtually at least but the students will gather here and have the like take the class together and one of the students june actually she's been on we've had her on here uh just left a whole pile of them for for everyone so i think they gave pleasure to a lot of people oh there morning. you go um my pleasure uh is as there's a number of my pleasures are the the result of my friendship with my friend ruby uh, and this is one of them. Uh, she has made it one of her life goals to get me into the Peter Whimsey novels by Dorothy Sayers. And she had a very specific itinerary for me to follow in order to get the full and best, fullest and best possible experience of the Lord Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane dynamic throughout these stories. Uh, and so I've reached the point where I am now finally allowed to read Gaudy Night which I have just started and have not gotten very far into it, full disclosure, but it starts off with uh, Harriet Vane heading back to Oxford and I'm just neck deep in Oxford nostalgia as well as just enjoying the story. So that has been my pleasure. Though my pleasure is not uh, much uh, more normal than that. Um, so I'm in this class with Neil DeRue on phenomenology, but I'm... Um, so wait, who's Neil DeRue? Neil DeRue is an ICS grad. Uh, he did his master's here, and then 
um, went on to, to work with Richard Carney at um, Boston College and now teaches at the King's University. And is cross-appointed at the Institute for Christian Studies. Um, yes. So he teaches a course on phenomenology. And um, and to, yesterday we were looking at the later Merleau-Ponty, which is wh what really... Um, what really gets me going when it comes to philosophy. So the late Merleau-Ponty is your pleasure philosophically? Yes, but that's not the specific pleasure for today. So um, the specific pleasure was I'm in class and I have all these notes on his last book, um, Merleau-Ponty's last book called The Visible and the Invisible. And I couldn't find them. And I had just cleaned up my room and I was like, where are all these notes? And I didn't have any, like, I don't have them saved electronically. Um, and they're like my lifeblood for the text. And then we got to break. Like during class, I'm like looking around. Everyone can watch my head, like not looking in, at the screen. And then we got to break and I like went, I just cleaned my room. I went to the garbage and I had thrown out all my notes for it. Mm. But thankfully, they, I have them all and they're all intact. So my pleasure is that I have all my notes on <laughs> the book that is most important to me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Just a minor heart attack. No big deal. <laughs> I know. Seriously. Oh, Jeez. well. You know what? When I was finishing my licentiate thesis, so it was 174 pages, mm -hmm. I went out for coffee with uh, uh, who was a person who was then a faculty member who was interested in my career who has become a very close friend we went to new college and it was a gorgeous day so we sat on a picnic table out in the lawn and we had a coffee and so on and uh, and then you know we left and so on what i didn't realize until eight hours later mm -hmm. was that i had left my briefcase under the picnic table with the only copy that existed of my complete <laughs> thesis. Uh. And so when I finally realized this and I went back, it was still there. Oh. And I went, Toronto the good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my land. So much anxiety. <laughs> That's it for our show this week. We'll be back again with Bob and Gideon for the final episode of this series, when we'll discuss what reformational philosophy has to say about how we think about and engage with the world. So please join us then. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow Gideon as at Gideon Strauss. And you can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you'd like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Mm -hmm.